0: If I'm going to catch grief for troubling things, then I'm going to be trouble, you know what I mean? Like I'm going to, I'm going to evoke, and, and without, uh, without worrying about the consequences, um, I'm going to evoke that disparity at all times.
1: Welcome, How little did you know. For little did you know, you named God Nigger, and I'm your host, Matthew Charles. This is an abolitionist podcast that seeks to reveal the precarity inherent in transracial and transnational adoption and dream of a new future by centering the voices of adoptees and professionals. Today we are continuing our conversation with Daniel Drennan El Awar on The Adoptive Voice. We talk about what it means to be a bridge as an adoptee. Daniel redefines adoption as a candy coated band aid. We talk about the breakdown of kinship care as a tactic of colonial violence, movement histories that can teach us something today. And at the end, Daniel answers Abby's question about rematriation, finding our way back to our motherland and what it means to him. Tune in for honestly my favorite episode so far. What then should be the role of the adoptee's voice in today's world? What would make for a valid and activist adoptee discourse? Upon closer examination, the framing of adoption as a form of dispossession puts the adoptee in a powerful position in terms of their writing if said writing does in fact, quote, depart from the script, end quote. In reducing, if not removing the aforementioned distances in terms of originating source and place, as well as any objectifying distance, the adoptee becomes a focal point a bridge between two different worlds. And so I think we've talked already about most of that, but something that I would like to specifically ask about is what does it mean to be an adoptee and a bridge between two different worlds? And what are those worlds? And what is the purpose of being a bridge?
0: Yeah, great question. Um, Part of that, again, goes back to the idea of what was primary in the minds of those who formed these bridges during the decolonization movement. So when I look at um, the Lotus magazine, for example, or the call uh, published by the uh, Afro-Asian Writers Organization, Association uh, back in the day, the premise of identity wasn't forefronted. the the dream of liberation was forefronted. And again, on Transracial Eyes, we've had many discussions of what it means to live on the razor's edge between, especially those who've gone back or those who found their uh, original families, sense of culture, roots, language, whatever the case may be being part of both worlds, but not being accepted in either, Um, often originating in one class and being adopted into another. Uh, So it's, the bridging is one of, again, going back to the, the denial of self and the denial of ego, if I'm able to trans, I, I I'm searching for the words because they often end up being taken wrongly. I don't mean that I speak for people. I don't mean that my story is representative. But when people translate what I'm saying this way, it's because they're seeing it through a lens of individuality. So. I've written on, I've written on aspects of things that only make sense if we consider denying that sense of individuality and denying uh, our own ego and becoming a conduit. Because in the North in North American society, by virtue of my education, by by virtue of uh, where I've reached professionally speaking, I'm walking around with privilege and I don't deny it. By the same token, there are limits to that and I know those limits and I work to either overcome them or deal with them or push past them. The ability or the requirement I feel, not requirement, the the need for me to be a constant reminder by bridging i don't mean i want to live comfortably in this world and i want to live comfortably in that world because i don't think that day is going to come but if i think of it in terms of an uneven playing field or differential or inequality then i'm it is incumbent there's the word it's incumbent on me to be attempting to level that playing field that makes me more than unwelcome in the place of my acculturation and more than unwelcome in the place of my origin, which due to reasons having to do with colonialism and uh, Western infiltration politically and otherwise, um, you know, the, the dominant culture in Lebanon is no less unwelcome than the dominant culture in North America. So. If it's, if I'm going, what I'm trying to say, in like layman's terms, if I'm not going, if I'm, if I'm going to catch grief for troubling things, then I'm going to be trouble. You know what I mean? Like I'm going to, I'm going to evoke and, and without, uh, without worrying about the consequences of, um, I'm going to evoke that disparity at all times. And it makes you, you know, it becomes problematic. I think, you know, my my job as a professor at the American University of Beirut, a colonial institution, if ever there was one, you know, when Malcolm X was asked to speak there, uh, the president at the time, who was an American said, you know, no enemy of America is going to speak on American land. So, seeing the American University is like a, a, a place uh, that belonged to the United States. Um, but I, I, I feel I, I know that speaking the way I did while on campus, or even you know working with Palestinians, or the collective that we started that uh, worked along these lines. Was not welcome there either. So, in a weird way, there's a bridging. There's a bridging that I see between uh, groups of people who are not given a sense of economic or political embodiment, but the bridging is already existing between what we might refer to as a cosmopolitan, globalized class of people. So, the the, the bourgeoisie in Lebanon that that didn't want us returning and reneged on our visas just as much in cahoots, if you will, with dominant culture in, in Europe and the States that resulted in our adoption in the first place. Local Lebanese law was changed, local Lebanese view of children was changed in order to um, facilitate our removal from the country. So ideas of nuclear family, ideas of, of um, what is an orphan? How do you define an orphan? So the definition of orphan becomes one of a child without parents in the nuclear family sense. But this has nothing to do with the family structure uh, in the Middle East and other places, Southwest Asia and North Africa. And, uh, the whole world exists with ideas of kinship and kinship care Adoption is, you know, getting back to what we were talking about before, the the mythology comes in because adoption is seen as the given and something that is universal, universalizable, meaning the uh, the aberration that is adoption is then imposed on the, the rest of the planet, which doesn't think this way. The popular imaginary of adoption is the exact opposite of the dominant culture. If you think of, the theft of children as being present in popular culture, whether it be Pinocchio or Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, or uh, meaning Hansel and Gretel. I mean, the idea that your children get taken from you is so aberrant to how the popular imaginary works. And that goes to explain the extra effort that goes into making adoption valid and validating it and why all of that pressure on us to abide by what is the definition of it and how it is utilized genocidally and otherwise. Um, and again, it's like abide or perish. Like, are you part of this? Are you part, Are you agreeing with this? If not, it's all gonna rain down on your head.
1: I wanna field there as well. <laughs> No, it's all right, man. It's, it's all right. Um, thank you for sharing all that. Um, you have another paper building off what you were just saying, the adoptee, as citizen, denizen, and alien, and I'll read uh, a short excerpt from that and ask some questions. A redefinition of adoption might be posited thus, adoption is in and of itself a violence based in inequality. It is candy coated, marketed, and packaged to seemingly concern families and children, but it is an economically and politically incentivized crime. It stems culturally and historically from the peculiar institution of Anglo-Saxon indentured servitude and not family creation. It is not universal and is not considered valid by most communal cultures. Mm -hmm. It is a treating of symptoms and not of disease. It is a reductive inversion of informal kinship practices it is a negation of families and an annihilation of communities not imbued with any notion of humanity due to the adaptive cultures inscribed biases concerning race class and human relevancy wow there's so much there my man so uh first question you mentioned that adoption is quote a violent space and inequality how is adoption a treating of symptoms and not of disease
0: This came up at the conference over the weekend, and it was, and it remains disturbing for me to see those of us who suffered displacement and dispossession being part of the process, meaning coming back and thinking that there's some reformable or reformed version of adoption that can be put in place that will work better. And my response is always, given the 1%, if we go to the 99 versus the 1% type of equation, if the 1% were to find it possible to adopt every child considered to be in need, we would have done nothing to have gotten rid of poverty, inequality, the disparities of, of, of living around the world and knowing that that is overcomable, the fallacy of adoption as a, as a saving grace becomes evident. So I find it, you know, the, it's a perfection and we, it's a perfection and a formalization of processes that got a bad rep. So the orphan trains, you know, they were, those were couched in the same vocabulary of saving these children. And, and but Charles Loring Bryce made a, a, a point of saying, referring to the children on the streets of New York and Boston as street Arabs from the dangerous classes. And that struck me because in actuality, it wasn't an anti-Arab se- sentiment, it was an anti-Semitic sentiment. So street Arab was a reference to uh, uh, the tenement populations, and you know the words we have like urchin and things like this that de- define uh, the children of these people. Um, but it was the same in Lebanon. You know, we were seen as a social problem that needed to be gotten rid of, and so when the premise is one of Making it uh, palatable, I go right to you know, either I de- okay if I'm if I'm dealing with the symptom, then you're going to have to explain to me how all of these children are going to make it to the first world, for want of a better term, or the global north, or however we posit it. And if that's not possible, and if that's not your goal, tell me what your goal is, because unless that's possible you're treating a symptom, a symptom of your cause, you know, whether it be globalization, imperialism, colonialism, the wars that have been going on for the entire history of the United States. I think there are two years in American history that the country has not been at war, you know, to turn the destruction of Korea or Vietnam into a marketing campaign of a baby lift. This is obscene, this is this is horrific and yet, that I, in Afghanistan, those same images of, sh- of soldiers holding children that they were res- rescuing. That hit me like a ton of bricks. It's like the same shit ass propaganda we've been looking at for 50, 60 years. It's crazy. Um, so the, the either, but the point being dominant culture of, of bourgeois liberalism makes no claim to wanting to spread, well, only exists based on its negation, which it constantly points to in order to make itself feel better about itself. The constant projection of the negative in order to create the positive of Western society is what we're dealing with. And I'm not going to have the discussion with somebody who is imbued by that and who who you know welcomes that and embraces that. So until you're ready to talk about the disease, which is the system that you've created and which privileges you and lifts you up to the detriment of so many others, there's
1: no discussion to be had. Right, because so much of adoption is thought of as a charitable act, and in the context of it, it was the powerful who were able to to. Do this charity for the powerless, Um, and so whether that's in the context of transnational adoptions or domestic adoptions, wherever it is, it is those with financial capital often who are able to be the class of adopters, and those without capital, those without safety, those who are immersed in precarity, who are forced in these positions where they must dispossess their own child for "quote unquote" their own good, Um, and and so. there's this quote: um, "A world uh, charity is is not needed in a just world," and so that really resonates with me insofar as what you're saying of just like you don't you don't get a badge for doing this alleged charity while on one hand it's a charity in the other hand you got the gun to the people's people you you're created this war. Uh, in in the United States, the context of a race war, which has destabilized black humanity uh, ever since it got here, hasn't validated it every single step. Um, And uh, listeners, if you don't believe, you can look into the history of the reconstruction era of this country. Um, And so this country has never desired um, a liberated class of black people, um, but it loves to pat itself on the back when white adopters taken black children who are in allegedly maybe truly but also really allegedly and assumed precarity um
0: i often i often you. say i often say to well i say it a lot now that i'm in canada you know don't break your arm patting yourself on the back because hey. and, and don't do that at my expense or don't do that <laughs> for my benefit you know and there are terms for it you know there there's a book by Jean Brickman called humanitarian imperialism you know the shift from Uh, and this is getting into like Antonio Gramsci and ideas of of hegemony. If I can't control you by convincing you of your betterment, then I need to resort to force. And there's a flip to that, which is also when the force has been removed, how do I continue the control? And so whether it be humanitarian aid or quote unquote charity, uh NGOs you know the the Palestinian rap group uh have a great song called which is the translation of NGOs and it just lists it's basically a manifesto for why you know we would be fine if we could get rid of all of these people basically thinking that they're helping us when all they're doing is siphoning off uh, money from the west to promote themselves and perpetuate themselves as a class of lice i don't know what the what a good analogy would be but the other analogy i use is pyromaniac firefighters you know like someone burns your house down and then shows up and rescues you quote unquote rescues you that's not right there's no beneficence there. There's no right. charity there, you know.
1: Am I supposed to thank you for putting exactly. me into the conditions wherein I needed to be saved?
0: Exactly.
1: exactly. <laughs> um, next question is how or what do you mean adoption is a reductive inversion of informal kinship practices?
0: So what what becomes interesting and when I was I had a fellowship at the Aspari Institute in uh, in Beirut and my focus was on citizenship and as I was researching, you know, part of part of the issue is the global north, global northern view of the global south as being uniform. And again, this idea of a blank slate, it just needs to be impressed with mm. modernity and it just needs to be molded with ideas of modernism. Uh, but what you find what I was looking for, what I was researching was resistance to the push for adoption from their countries. And this took many forms. Um, in a country like uh, Morocco, the, the discussion was on uh, the Quranic invocation of the orphan and the communal care of the orphan. So it was, the issue wasn't, how to put it, The issue wasn't that there wasn't protection for those children. The issue was that a Westernization had broken down the nuclear, had broken down communal kinship, had broken down uh, uh, sense of community in a way that only allowed for orphanages to exist as exporters of children. Hmm. Brazil was another case where Kinship care was uh, brought to the fore, and and I don't speak Portuguese, but famílias de creação. So, created families, the idea that family was flexible, this is leagues beyond the concept of the nuclear family, or the idea that children aren't belonging to you. You don't own them like you own property, but they are part of a community. Uh, going back to the Quran, the words that are translated as adopted, there are two words that are in the Quran that refer to what ends up sadly being translated into English in both cases as adoption. The first one is is a, a verb that basically means taking in, but taking in like you would take in a servant or someone who would come into your household to serve the household. They're not, it's not a familial term. So the story of Joseph and the story of uh, Uh, Moses' blessings upon them, both refer to this term. The other term speaks of acknowledgement, like a town would acknowledge a townsperson. So it's, again, it's not a familial statement, but it's one of you are part of this greater body And that, those connections are valid and they cannot be ruptured Um, in the the Black community in the United States. Dorothy Roberts has written extensively on foster care and adoption as a tax on the Black family and and setting up a kind of uh, breakdown of community that goes back to, you know, Daniel Patrick Moynihan and his statements about the Black family back in the day. the, the notion, so take if I, if I need to undo, and again, I, I, I speak of it in terms of, of Anglo-Saxon culture because the colonization of Scotland, the colonization of Ireland were premised on breaking clan structures down. Hmm. So the, the, the ability to take the Highlands in Scotland or to overcome Irish resistance the first thing that it was done, is done, is breaking down of the family structure, redefining it along lines of nuclear family, such that you're able to then turn to children and say, this children's not connected to somebody. This, children, this child is not connected to a family, meaning two parents. Or the organization that we started in Lebanon called Bede'el, which means Alternatives very similar to how you described the uh, Indian Child Welfare Act. We, and it's so easy to do. You set up a list and say, okay, first thing, are the parents dead? No. Okay, are they in, in prison? Like what happened to them? Why aren't they, whatever that reason is, can they be assisted in some way? And you keep going down the list. Okay, they are dead. All right, well, are their uncles, are their aunts, are their grandparents? Is there a group, is there a communal representative, especially in the indigenous case, that's willing to take into this child? When you have this long ass list and the very last thing is, okay, in this worst case scenario, we will consider adoption. The question becomes, why is everybody hell bent on taking point ninety nine and making it one? Right. And that reframes it and gives us what adoption is. So the breakdown of kinship care as a form of colonial or imperial aggression, uh, to me is evident at this point. Trying to convince somebody of that is a little bit more difficult. But I think when you look at sites of resistance in countries that have pushed back against adoption, and this includes England, the mothers of of the children in the foundling hospitals would take a a very particular piece of cloth and and attach it to the child's swaddling in the hope of being reunited, a kind of marker that would say, and it would match up with the rest of the cloth that the mother held on to. So those mothers weren't relinquishing children. Those children were taken from them. Wow. Yeah. Wow.
1: Unfortunately, that's a perfect segue into my next question. Uh, How, uh, how does adoption negate family, which you talked about, but then also how does it annihilate communities, quote, not imbued with any notion of humanity due to the adaptive cultures inscribed biases concerning race, class and human relevancy?
0: So this is this is the. I have, when I, when I often am contacted by adoptees asking me questions about Lebanon, and I say to them, okay, do you want the sledgehammer in a pillow or you want it on its own? Like, <laughs> this is gonna hurt but, and I can try and lessen the blow a little bit, but um, the, the moment of, the moment of calm This is going to sound completely aberrant. The moment of calm I found when I realized that there was no point in appealing to a moral high ground in my acculturating society, meaning any individual story I might tell, any group story, communal story I might tell, didn't matter because we were not seen as human to begin with. This was such a relief, you know, Sata Shakur famously said, you know, no one has gained their liberation, I'm paraphrasing, no one has gained their liberation by appealing to the moral sense of their oppressor. And, you know, when I I remember the, the 33 days of the 2006 July war and appealing to media and doing, you know, ridiculous, Uh, candlelight vigils for western cameras and Mm. it sat so wrong and and you know having CNN on the phone wanting to interview me as the American who stayed behind and I was like no 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 I'm 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 staying because I'm not getting on a fucking warship that's sitting off the coast tossing bombs up into the hills above Beirut like, I'm not doing that. And this is home now, you know. Um, but the point there is also the realization, oh, you know, and then when the call came the next day for the interview and they, they canceled it because the Tour de France was ending, it's like, okay, mm-hmm. all right, I get it. Right. Doesn't make It doesn't make me feel good to say this stuff. It doesn't make me feel better. But it was a relief to know to understand that the mass of humanity is seen as excess and expendable. And at that point, you know everything makes sense. The, the ascribing of a percentage of humanity to the black slave population of the United States. How, how can you possibly say to me that out of that comes morality or out of that comes democracy? you know, the fact that the, the Canadian uh, system of reservations and passes became the model for South African apartheid, and that it exists still here for, in formalized form. It hasn't gone away. You know, the segregation of society is still uh, extant. You know, you, I, I refuse the I refuse the charters and the Bill of Rights and the UN. This, that, and the other thing. It's like, no, no. The, our humanity is not a function of Western definition, as such. And so, the the idea that, uh, or the the, the re- that realization then points toward those who have been fighting that domination and fighting that oppression and resisting over generations, over centuries, um, everything that it brings with it. And that's where, so you have the, you have uh, terms And I always say from Aristotle to Agamben, like the the entirety of Western philosophy is premised on those who belong and those who don't. And like I was saying before, you know, the projection or the negation that creates the positive of one's self. Like what when I say the West, I I don't, that term means nothing to me. It's like, like the, the term Middle East means nothing because it's premised on, Um, a definition that comes from outside but the point there is that when I stop imagining that I'm seen as part of that ideal of humanity I'm relieved of trying to assimilate or belong or be part of that like you've made that decision right and here's my resistance in the face of that right and it's the only it's the only possible response Mm. you're gonna like I said you know you're you're gonna you're going to admire the classical music that they're playing to cattle as they bring them into a slaughterhouse. Like it's, it's bizarre, but, you know, and I say this, you know, as if I've, I've achieved some ideal of, of, of uh, enlightenment. It's, it's we're swimming in that water. You know, I don't judge anybody. The things we have to do are the thing you know what we got to do is what we got to do, and it becomes a question of of survival both back in greater Syria and and in North America. Um, But I don't have to I don't have to buy into the mythology of my oppressors in order to appeal to some higher sense of morality that doesn't exist in the first place.
1: Right, um, and that, that connects right back to the quote from Asada Shakur, Shakur when she's saying that the, the oppressed have never gained anything from their oppressors by appealing to their uh, moral senses. I forget the exact quote. Um, but that also makes me think of uh, Kwame Ture who said power can teach nothing without demand. And you know, there's this phrase that we have um, the haves and the have nots. Another way to imagine that um, in this context is the possessors and the dispossessed. Because at this point in human history, the, the, the possessors possess most of everything on this planet. And the dispossessed are dispossessed of everything. Like in Oregon State, I don't actually know if it's still this way. But when I lived there, it's illegal for you to collect rainwater. Ha, 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 what? What the fuck? like how are you going to make it illegal to collect rainwater for your own usage? You know, um, listening to, um, and-
0: in Florida it's illegal to hand out sandwiches to homeless people. You know, the, the, yeah. the, the, the idea of mutual aid has been under attack. The idea of communal outreach under attack and the only thing left. And it's disturbing. The only thing left is charity in the sense of a giving from above mutual yes. aid is defining, something without hierarchy, like we're assisting each other, right? Mm -hmm. But charity, the idea is I'm, I'm bequeathing this and I get to write it off on my taxes. Completely different idea.
1: Right, and I think of this in the context of the Black Panther Party and one of their, their, their programs, the survival programs. Like right. this idea, like the whole idea of having these survival programs, the genesis of that being that, you know, we're going to do these things to raise the awareness. We're gonna have these after school uh, program. We're gonna have this breakfast program. We're gonna do all these different things. There's medical programs, clothing programs to uh, one, primarily serve people who need to be served but also in that being served they are made aware that they live in a society that is not caring for them um and so like all of us live in the society and i think i think one of the problems like (laughs) this is like one of the like more irritating uh reverberations Mm -hmm. since 2020 and the all this anti-racist stuff like People in people's imaginations, it's like that black people are very dispossessed and police brutality and all these different things. This is true. Um, but white people act as if they live in a society that cares about them. Uh they don't. Like <laughs> white people are most of the homeless people. They're most of the people in prison. They are most of the people who are getting killed by cops. They are the ones who are experiencing all these things at greater number, partially because there's so many of them. Um and so there's
0: also there's also the fact that. And I'm old enough to remember, you know, when you grow up and the acculturation of the former white underclass, whether it be in Appalachia or the South, you know, Little Abner. Uh, the the there was a TV show called Haw. Ostensibly, it was about you know country singers and performances, but. The representation of the white underclass, (laughs) mind boggling when you look back, the point I'm trying to make is also that underclass served as the source of white adoptable children for a long stretch of time, Mm -hmm. separate from the baby scoop, separate from middle-class and upper middle-class mothers who were forced to relinquish their children for the sake of the family name, Uh, the white underclass of the United States served as the source of children. And it was when that source started to dry up for want of a better term, that focus turned to international and other means of adopting children. Um, It's no accident that though that underclass was made up of people from places which were racialized as non Anglo Saxon. Yeah. So, again, getting back to that idea of, um, you know, how do you, how, at what point, there's a, there's a, a great quote from Emmanuel Todd, the sociologist in France, and he says something along the lines of, you know, Anglo Saxon culture defines the line that separates itself from you, but that line shifts. And some people get closer, and some people are are pushed further away, mm-hmm. and some people are completely, literally beyond the pale, like they're never going to make it. Um, but that 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 idea of who belongs—it's like you know—you're talking life raft kind of thing. You know, <laughs> who's in, and if I'm not in, how do I fight to get a place inside of that?
1: Right. Right, and and uh, what you're talking about with the reserves of white children depleting and that's what turned the, the nation's attention to transracial and transnational adoption. Uh, this is historically documented in the 1972 uh, position statement on transracial adoption that was given by the National Association of Black Social Workers, wherein they say, uh, you don't want to adopt black children for us you want to do it because there's not white children to adopt anymore we are a convenience to you you didn't give a fuck about this before uh obviously using some different language uh in the show notes i'll have a link to that paper so y'all can read it for yourselves but they said no transracial adoption black to white specifically in this context should not be a thing because one of the reasons is y'all white folks are not going to be able to help these black children uh, find coping mechanisms and defense mechanisms for this racist society because you are the racist in this society. (laughs) And And look look
0: where, look, sorry to interrupt, but look where we are now. This has shifted into, and this is really disturbing, especially like you said, in the 70s, um, black social workers were sounding this alarm And, you know, Dorothy Parker, Dorothy Dorothy Roberts, among many others have kind of continued that in their their research and their work. Today, when you have on NPR, white parents of black children, black adopted children, and they're presented as the perfected caregiver, you know, and they're writing books with titles like, oh my God, I can't, you know, I don't even want to say them. Having to do with you know vanilla and chocolate and and you know and you know and and how-to's on taking care of of, of black hair and this kind of things like wait, wait, how did where did all of the everything we're learning or everything some of us are learning about this country? How did you find a way to turn that around and turn it on its head? And now you're promoting these people as perfected caregivers of of non-white children.
1: Right, and the crazy thing is, you know, like, cause now there's different, uh, let's see, how do I say this? Um, Now, like a big thing in black to white transracial adoption, you know, uh, white adopters are concerned about, oh, how do I take care of the care? So they're watching these YouTube tutorials, they're in their little groups doing whatever they're doing. Uh, They're trying to uh, learn how to create, uh, like, uh, culturally um, ancestral foods, of the adopted children uh, and so um, different cultural uh, accommodations are are being made for their uh, new black child. Um, but you know, what isn't really talked about is like well, you know what? A lot of y'all's politics are still pretty anti-black. So like, oh, I don't course. care if you know how to braid this kid's hair, <laughs> like, like, bro. <laughs> like,
0: and P.S. P.S., are you willing to move across the tracks? I mean, that expression, I use it for everything it means. The whole idea that there's a, a division in every town with a train track running through it and there's one side and there's the other. Are you willing to step down from your class position move to that community and raise that child there. The answer is going to be right. resounding. No, there's no, I had a conversation with an adoptive parent once and she was saying, you know, uh, the son currently in our care is acting out and I don't know how to deal with it. And I said, you know, by your last name, I can tell you're of Irish ancestry mm. and maybe you want to look into the resistance to the dominant, uh, colonizer of Ireland and realize what is what is your potential to resist now? Mm-hmm. And later she wrote back and she said, you know, we moved because it was an open adoption. They moved to the neighborhood um, of the child's family and the her entire family, you know, basically disinherited her. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, and so the repercussions of the, of crossing those lines and literal lines um, still exist. And but that's what you know. If somebody's gonna say, "I'm a valid caretaker," it's like, okay, step down, right? Pick right. up and move, and 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 learn. But then at that point, you're 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 getting to. The, their validity as caretaker just goes out the window if they
1: make such. Right. A so Yeah, it's, it's such a crazy, just like tightrope—not even tightrope—just did gymnastics that have to be done, you know. And as you're talking about moving across the tracks, and you know, I'm reminded—I tell this in a number of different episodes—and to people that know me, you know, I was in Ferguson, Ferguson, in October, uh, after Mike Brown was killed, um, got choked out by the cops. One of my favorite moments—not uh, that I'm sorry—but my glasses uh, fell off my face because I was being choked out so violently, and Cornell West picked them up and handed them to me. So that's my claim to fame: is Cornell gave my glasses back? <laughs> I ain't never washed them ever since. Just kidding. That's <laughs> uh, uh, but um, and, and when I when I was going to to touch the bat and to to alleviate it from my windpipe because I'm on my knees actually, Cornell um, as as a practicing Christian had said that we should because uh, we went march to the uh, Ferguson police department and he said that the front line which i was on we should kneel and pray and so I was doing that then riot cops slide up in between us in the building they say move back when i move back uh they take try and push us back i'm on my knees he takes it back trying to push me back like this but there's people right behind me so i'm just actually getting choked out you know so i'm about to reach and, and alleviate it from my windpipe talking about i can't breathe um and uh he says if you touch it i'll arrest you and so I didn't touch it, let myself get choked out because I have a phone. I ain't know my St. Louis family's number. Uh, so I was just like in between not a rock and a hard place, but a baton and a hard body. Um, so tough. Uh, get back to Wisconsin and tell my my uh, adopter about this. And uh, white lady, um, she says, what if there's a race war? Whose side do I choose? And so what you're talking about moving to the other side of the tracks in, in literal uh, relocation, but then also in political relocation is a necessity because, like, we can't be letting anti, in the context of me as a Black person, we can't be letting anti Black people be raising Black children. That is a terrible. Uh, life sentence which manifests as death oftentimes we talk about uh, we talk about adoptees having a four times higher likelihood of committing suicide and as a a transracial adoptee i will be honest i have attempted a number of times um and this coming because having to live in a home that was foundationally implicitly and at times explicitly anti-black but yet I was adopted and it was a charitable act and I was saved. And so it's good. And so this great uh, chasm of the the myths of the adopter class and the realities of the dispossessed, trying to reconcile, this is a shithole, but I'm supposed to be grateful for it because nobody else wanted me. Um, And so you you were talking about being imbued with notions of humanity and and that really resonated with me Um, a couple of weeks ago, I just finished Afro Pessimism by Frank Wilkerson and he talks about this idea that black people are not humans because human is monopolized by white people. And so black people can't become humans until an apocalypse, until a revolution occurs where we are then able to reclaim that. But no reform incremental reform is going to bestow upon us humanity. And so um, something I wanted to ask you about is like, if humanity can be bestowed as, as you, you mentioned, um, what, what does that really mean that humanity is being bestowed? And what more, more presciently, what is the psychic effect of being a person who can bestow humanity and what is the psychic effect of being a person whom humanity must be bestowed upon?
0: It's a great question. And the, the conundrum, the paradox of our existence walking that razor's edge, and no matter what we might do to make it palatable for ourselves, I've often spoken of my, especially the 12 years I was back in Lebanon, Lebanon, plateaus of comfort where whatever narrative had developed in my head, I was comfortable for it. And I stopped pushing and I stopped searching because I needed a resting place. Hmm. And then at some point that would be channeled or challenged or troubled. And I had to to pick it up again. Um, But looking back on that, I realized that that comfort is not real and that's when i started constantly troubling my own sense of uh, identity belonging all of these things long-winded way of saying the resonances that i find with that line of thinking come both from Uh, my faith from Islam, but also from Marxism and a lot of writers from the global South. And again, the conundrum and the paradox becomes, how do I approach this and find a way to remove myself from the lens that I've been acculturated to put in front of everything, which is a particular perspective coming from a particular class definition and idea of Uh, liberalism and democracy. And I often find myself saying things like, and again, the Hajj Malik Shabazz was the master of this, like being asked a question and questioning where the question comes from and pointing out the, the, the invalidity of the originating question because of who's questioning. And the society that it's coming from, and being able to upend the prevailing wisdom that is putting you in your corner, is painting you into a corner. Uh, I turn to, I turn to a lot of writers from the, like I said, you know, scholars from the global south, but also my experience in Lebanon, where. This doesn't come up because you're you're literally among people within a different class reality. It's not saying I'm not. It's not making some weird distinction between, you know, the popular realm and 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 giving them, giving it, some kind of idealized uh, priority. The point is more. What troubles me now being back in North America is the fact that I'm in constant, constant defensive mode. I'm in constant explaining mode. I'm in constant reactive mode. And what I miss is when those things didn't trouble the discussion or become part of the discussion. And so I'm not answering your question at all, but the point is the point is more... Um, finding finding a way to build an alternative framework, finding those sites of resistance that are not only speaking out against the dominant cultural mode, but are putting in place, whether we call it dual power or working within the system or whatever the case may be, by avoiding every aspect of the system which is in and of itself dehumanizing and we 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 see the we see the what's the word we see the middle ground you know if if i if i if if i talk and again there's no judgment here it's just an observation of self help books or neoliberal thinking or how do i get ahead and and all of this stuff which is part of our culture and premised in the individual it's really To move forward means denying that ego and denying that. And this is no minor thing in our society to put forward ideas of communal care, for example, or mutual aid. Once you have the stamp, you know, the stamp of either anarchist or communist or Muslim or whatever the case may be, you're marked. the point the, the, but then i i recall you know, the answering the question if i if i dive into the history of this resistance it's so profound and so widespread and the fact that okay i mean maybe i'm talking to someone in the states who doesn't understand the the history of, say, the the Communist Party and organizing uh, sharecroppers in Alabama and other parts of the South, that aspect of history may may go um, unknown. But I can also point to Jackson, Mississippi, and uh, Cooperation Jackson, and the, the kind of resistance to not just the state of Mississippi, but the dominant cultural mode of the country, I can point to that as living, breathing resistance that is currently taking place. And it's in researching those sites of resistance. You know, growing up in New Jersey, I didn't learn about the Patterson mill strikes. I didn't learn about, you know, the, the history of, of anarchism in the States. (laughs) Like I didn't know there was a, Kropotkin Anarchist Library in Piscataway, which was across the river from where I grew up. All of that is there. All of that is there. And which gets to the, the idea of, you know, why, why is history so problematic for, for a neoliberal capitalist economy? Because they want us to forget. They want us to break those lines of, you know, continuation of, of resistance. To speak about the Black Panthers, it, it upsets me. That, you know, books about Emery Douglas, for example, and the, the the Black Panthers speak in the past tense. They always, you know, this happened, but it's done. So don't look at that as any kind of inspiration. Go to Oakland. <laughs> you know, I mean, spend spend 10 minutes in Oakland and see how that persists and how that continues as a as a mindset. So the the kind of Escaping from our mediation and escaping from, you know, what the dominant cultural mode dis- determines is, is valid for us to see and hear and listen to um, becomes a, the first priority. And the second is, you know, going back in history and finding all those moments of, of bridging and union. You know, if I look, they're like the, the movie Maidawan about the West Virginia mine strikes where you had Italian migrant workers, former uh, Black slaves, and the, the white Appalachians of that town coming together to fight the corporate landowners who wanted to um, break the strike and, and just have people working as slave labor for them. You know, these, are, these are inspiring uh, moments that we can point to and say, what we're living today is contrived. What, the, the moment we have, what's going on around us now is not the history. And it doesn't, you don't have to go back too far before you start seeing um, the sense of, of bridging and coalition and solidarity, um, which is what is needed. You, you know, to, to to put apocalypse and revolution in the same sentence, you know, apocalypse to me is the thing that you've allowed to happen because you're not revolting. <laughs> you know, it's this is the trajectory we're on without revolution. Um, and so to to take it upon ourselves to resist and you know the Palestinians say existence is resistance it's not something I do once a week it's not something I have a choice about yeah maybe I'll skip that meeting and go and again I'm saying this it's it's without judgment it's just it's it's not a question of what are you doing what are you not doing it's more what direction do you lean in and how do you frame things such that 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 lean is always present you know my 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 faith teaches me that every interaction of every single day involves a power differential that it is incumbent on me to undo somehow so whether that you know however i even out that playing field that is my responsibility and that's how i meet know we were talking before about the day-to-day there's a word in arabic for those interactions and the tying together of communal bonds we don't have this word in english ma'un you know it's a it's a, a surah of the quran and the translation is always different because there's no one english word that kind of sums that up um it it reminds me of you know the 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 days of Kwanzaa and one being Juma and the coming together and congregation it's similar there's not a there's not an English equivalent for us to point to as having meaning there and so I look to that as what's missing and this is kind of coming full circle to where we started our conversation today but Knowing what's missing and knowing that that aspect of communal bonding is not taking place throughout society, it does take place in these pockets of of resistance, and that's what makes them resistance. And this is what's attacked when when they come after us and and point out, you know, you're you're an enemy of the state, or you're anti-American, or, you know, stand up and pledge your allegiance, like, no, no, I'm not doing it
1: right? In a world that wants us to forget, remembering is a revolutionary act and is a genesis of sorts. Um, And and that's what I hear you talking about. Um, So thank you for, man, coming on the show, sharing all this. I have one last question. Um, I had uh, somebody named Abby wanted me to ask you this. So I would just read her whole Facebook comment. Very excited for this episode. I believe it was Daniel who coined the term, quote, rematriation in the context of reunion and returning to country of origin to visit or live. I really feel this term so deeply, especially as opposed to repatriation, since for me, much of my early search focus was very much about finding my way back to my mother. I would love to hear him speak to what rematriation means to him. Hmm.
0: Now I'm going to get all emotional on you guys. <laughs> um, when I was, when I, the the day I learned in May that the government of Lebanon was reneging on my visa, my quote unquote, courtesy visa, meaning, the, you know, the courtesy of being able to stay in the country. I had been pursuing nationality all the time I had been back and that had been upset, actually, by finding my family, meaning my lawyer was creating this convoluted case out of, you know, the name on this birth certificate, which is false, belongs to this person who was adopted and who has this name now, so how do we match them up within the constraint of Lebanese law and give this guy, you know, an ID card about three feet wide, because we have to write that all out somehow. Yes. And at the very same time, I found my story. And so the day before I left um, Beirut, my cousin Jamal and his father, Dr. Awar, uh, brought me up to my mother's crypt. And, uh, you know, quite an intense moment of keening for the woman who fought to keep me with her as I learned. You know, so the, the mythology of, Oh, yeah, your mother gave you up. Oh, your mother loved you so much, she gave you away. This is all bullshit. You know, you can't tell me. And the case is always made. Well, you know, in this particular case, the mother didn't want the child. Well, what were the reasons for that? What are the societal reasons that lead to such a thing? Um, So I wrote a, I, I put together a kind of open letter to Lebanon, and this came This came also after a lot of research into corollaries with the indigenous experience. And what struck me was, and it's in, and maybe it, I'm not gonna do justice to what I wrote, but um, for, for Abby, maybe we can put a link to that letter and it explains it in much better detail. But it struck me that we use the word repatriation for things like bones and dead soldiers and, you know, going back to a place that we weren't severed from. And rematriation actually comes from an indigenous concept of being tied to the land and a sense of belonging that is not just genealogical to reduce it to purely DNA, but also a place and uh, especially when I, when I think of the women who were the frontline defenders of my return, you know, when when my original family sent a sheikh within the Druze community to basically warn me away, it was the women of my village who protected me and a sheikh showed up at uh, my cousin Arij's door and her mother and said to her mother uh, we want Daniel's phone number we need to call him and get him off the search you know this this wasn't possible there's no way possible that he belongs to this wealthy and powerful family within the community and her mother said you give me your phone number. And if Daniel wants to talk to you, I will pass it on to him. So there there was a kind of circling and um, a bond between my my cousin Jamal's grandmother remembers my my mother visiting her village. You know, my connections are not just to this woman who gave birth to me, but to the women who protected me and served as, um, who weren't able Perhaps at the time to stand up and protect me, but today um, protect me. I think of you know, the Hajj who lived upstairs for me in Beirut. She would, I would, be, if I were on my balcony, she'd call down, and she'd lower cake to me, you know, like Danielle. And, and I remember like one Ramadan, we were exchanging food and that kind of thing. And I was thanking her profusely. And she cut me off and she was like, yeah, Daniel, and to Ibni, you know, Daniel, you're my son. And when I, I later learned that her uh, her son and grandson had been killed during the war and was, you know, shoes I couldn't fill. And yet here was this woman, you know, also when I would, when she would come down and knock on my door, um, removing her veil. You know, a sense of your family, you're able to see me. I mean, I, I was never expecting this when I went back. And so the, the idea to me of, and I can go on and on and on, and I, I've, it's, in, it's in this letter, so we'll just give out the link and I'll stop rambling. But, you know, the mothers of Spain who assemble every week in white, and in Argentina as well, looking for the children and the grandchildren who are uh, now grandchildren who were disappeared during Franco's reign or who were disappeared during the the dictatorships in in South America. You know, the the, uh, Encarnacion uh, del Romero in the United States, a Guatemalan mother fighting to get her son back. You know, here's the mother, she wants her child back and the courts of course, Rule her to be an immigrant and not valid, and so. Um, but the original, the original sense of the term, and in the 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 letter I'm referring to, I I give the actual link where where I found the word and how I came across it. Um, but it is it is um, to me a quite primal and primordial concept, you know. Going back means looking to find that lost connection, not just to my mother, but also to the place. And and as I call it in Arabic, it's the sense of the word is a little bit different. You know, my source, where did I source from? Different from something, you know, an, an object removed that, is coming back and is being repatriated um, to where it used to be, completely different concept.
1: Wow, that's beautiful. Um, makes me think of, you know, this. So I'm, I'm working on a memoir right now. Um, and this morning I was thinking about Abby's question as well in the context of asking it to you. And I was remembering that for me, like as a teen, um, early teens, like, I had discovered online this this word called sankofa, which is a Ghanaian uh, symbol. Uh, It's traditionally depicted with a bird, usually like a crane-esque bird with its head pointed backwards, kind of pointing at its plumage. Um, And what that represents is to go back to the past to receive that which was lost or forgotten, or to inspect the past to uh, inform the future. Um, And and that concept was always so... um, important to me to the point of, you know, like, uh, as a creative, where I got my conscious beginnings was as, as a rapper um, around the age of 13. And so my my first album that I was going to make, uh, which I'm pretty sure I did make, I just didn't put out, I don't know what happened, uh, was called Sankofa at the time. Um, and, and so I was writing about that this morning, and I was talking about, um, you know, before I went to Africa for the first time, how much I hoped and prayed that it would be Ghana that I was going back to because what I imagined Ghana was the way I write it. um, I say um, it it was a a mother, a mouth and a womb. Um, And so wanting to um, be born again um, in this sense, this return so that I could, be who I thought I was supposed to be all along, as you talked about with your experiences in Lebanon. Um, and so, um, and, and even in, in, I don't know how other homelands are imagined. I haven't read enough, had uh, not had enough conversations yet, but um, with, with Africa, we typically refer to that as the motherland. And so for me, um, the idea of where I was from was always a mother, um, and it was always a womb uh, was always a birthing place um, that I wanted to go back to. And so going back there for the first time and, and meeting Indigenous Africans and having those conversations to me where, where I was I was honored beyond what I ever imagined I would be honored. They um, often welcomed me as, as a brother, as a son, and said that their home was mine. And that anytime I wanted to return, like the door was open and I was just like, internally so um, conflicted in the sense of like I'm in this place which like my body remembers like I when, I when I when I went to Africa like the same as you're talking about being in Lebanon and like knowing you fit in like you don't look out of place anymore like me I was with a bunch of white girls. Uh, and so they would they say, Mazungu, Mazungu, talking about these white people. But they thought that I was, when I, was in, I went to Tanzania first, they thought I was Tanzanian. In fact, our host told me, you know what, Matthew, uh, you're going to have to tell them that you're not Tanzanian because you actually. Specifically, look Tanzanian, and so you're gonna tell them, ki Swahili," which means I don't speak Swahili. But here's the thing, Matthew, they're not gonna believe you because that's actually how Tanzanian you look. And, and so I remember I was walking on this road, and this dude uh, who was carrying a heavy load, like a big ass tree, going somewhere, I don't know what he was doing, carrying tree. He stops us speaking in Kiswahili Swahili to us, uh, to me specifically, and I was just like, Key Swahili," like. And he he was joking. He thought I was playing with him. And I, he did not know English. And so he just keeps rapid fire, kiswahili Swahili. And then like I, I switched to English. And it's like as in a quote unquote American accent as I could, like, bro, like I'm I'm really not from here. Like, just wanted you to know, like, you, you hear how, how my voice sounds like, not from here. And he did not believe me. We was speaking for like 30 minutes. And, and so like that was this like. Whoa! I'm in this place that refuses to believe I'm not at home right now. And that is one of the most like precious moments in my life is being somewhere that refused to believe I wasn't at home among them, which is not how America feels. (laughs) Exactly. So thank you for coming on the show. Uh, It's been a pleasure having this very long conversation with you. This is my favorite conversation I've ever had uh, for this podcast. I'm so excited for the listeners to hear it. If you like what you heard today, treat the show like an Uber driver. Rated five stars. And we'll see you for the next episode. We're going to be having Adoptee Futures from the UK talk to us about some things that we're going to find out about. Little Did You Know is a listener-supported show. If you enjoyed what you heard today or any of the other episodes you've already listened to, please consider becoming a supporter of the show by joining my Patreon for as little as $5 per month. Again, Little Did You Know is a listener-supported show, so if you enjoyed what you heard today or any of the other episodes you listened to, please consider joining my Patreon to support the show. You can find a link in the show notes. It's also patreon.com slash Matthew Charles Poet. All right, y'all. See y'all next episode.